Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Never the Same. It's a podcast where we talk about navigating uncertainty and the events that changed us. I'm your host, Jordan Chu. Thanks for joining me as we navigate this beautiful but uncertain world together. And he said to me, you know, this is probably one of the worst things you're ever going to go through in your whole life. And you're going to cry a lot. And one day there will be a day that you don't cry. And what I can promise you is that the time in between the hard times will get greater. And what he meant by that is that there'll be a day and then there'll be two days and then I'll probably cry again. And then there could be a month or two or a year, but that that pain and sadness for my dad will always be there, but the good will start to shine through. Today's guest is the one and only Cheyenne Ellis. Where do I start with Cheyenne? Well, first off, she's a she's an old friend of mine. We've known each other about 10 years now, and she's always been someone I look up to for things both serious like work and handling the shit life throws at you, and, and also for play and how to have a vibrant social life. There's no one who really brings people together quite like Shy. Professionally, she's a commercial photographer, uh, been very good at it, traveled the world behind the lens, but uh, in front of it, she's a model of emotional intelligence, kindness, and community. She recently retired as the unofficial mayor of Topanga to move up to Half Moon Bay to marry a big wave surfer, and her presence is strongly felt wherever she goes, whether that's leading our Burning Man camp, making world-class avocado toast, or on the wild nights, dancing until 9 p.m. Shai was super close with her dad, and when she lost him suddenly, her world was thrown upside down. And then that was again compounded when her mom passed just a couple years later, also unexpectedly and with a lot of questions left unanswered. Our first convo got cut off about halfway through, which technical difficulties due to this first time podcaster. But uh, we just kept going. And on the second round, um, we still got really deep into how to show up for people in times of loss, finding joy amongst the pain, normalizing conversations around death and how to make the most of this time here on earth. Shai was instrumental in my own healing journey uh, and in the aftermath of losing Lee, so I'm super excited to introduce you all to her. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, Cheyenne Ellis. Okay, <laughs> we're back. <laughs> Hi, Cheyenne. Hello. Um, we had a little technical difficulty, so this is round two, um, but thank you for being here. So excited to chat with you. Um, Cheyenne Ellis is a dear, dear friend of mine, and she is a lifelong Californian. She is an amazing photographer. She's a friend to many. She is a dog mom extraordinaire. <laughs> She's an avid hot sauce collector. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she may have even introduced hot sauce to a uh, <laughs> Indonesian island. I don't know. We'll hear that story later. But... Um, yeah, thanks for being here. Of course, thanks for chatting with me. Um, I know I gave you just that silly little intro, but um, yeah, you want to tell the people who you are and sure. uh, just a short little intro? Yes. Um, like you said, Cheyenne Ellis, California native. Um, my family moved to Malibu in the 50s. My grandmother is still there to this day. And um, my mom so my dad's family the ellises are from malibu my mom's family is from the san fernando valley originally from ireland um 
yeah, my parents were quintessential 60s and 70s surf California vibes. And when they split, my mom moved to the mountains. We always joke that a ski bunny married a surf bum. And when they divorced, they both got their way. <laughs> and my sister and I benefited from it. And you got the best of yes. both worlds. So when I was 10, we moved to Mammoth with my mom. And I grew up in the mountains. Um, so I feel like I was always in a small town because um, Malibu in its heyday was a very small town um, back then and hanging on to its country roots as much as it can. But then in my adult life, um, after traveling around New York and different parts of the world, I landed in Topanga Canyon for the last 12 12 years prior to meeting my husband, um, and I moved up to Half Moon Bay, California, where I now reside, and I am officially Cheyenne Ellis Seelbach, one year in. Love Sounds hearing that. weird. <laughs> but um, yeah, we just celebrated our honeymoon in Indonesia, and um, our one-year anniversary, so it feels legit. It does, yeah. Kind of brought it full circle <laughs> um well let's just jump into it so i there's a lot of reasons i wanted to talk to you and um obviously for me the most you know kind of relevant thing when lee died was how present you were for me and when i say present i mean you literally packed your bags and you got in the car and you showed up and you slept on my couch and you did that for a week or maybe more i don't remember um it was all a bit it was a bit of a blackout but mm -hmm. i do remember that i was so grateful for you and being there and when i woke up in the morning you know, the morning I had, I remember I had good mornings in the sense that there was always a couple minutes when I woke up when I wouldn't really remember what had happened. And there was that kind of like grace period. And then that grace period would end and it would come crashing down. And <laughs> when that, that hit, that was often some of the lowest moments. And I remember just being so thankful that I could open my door and walk outside and that you were I was on there. Your couch. You were on the couch. <laughs> and I was saying earlier that, you know, I think what made that even more special I know you don't sleep on couches. You're mm -hmm. you're a hotel girl. You've earned it. You you like the nicer things and just I was so grateful to have you. So um Yeah, again. I you're welcome. I, I I just realized that I didn't even ask. <laughs> yeah. And just decided to squat on your couch for five days, whether you liked it or not. Yeah. So we can we can touch on your story. Um, and obviously this comes from experience. You're, you're an emotionally intelligent person. You're, um, but how? I guess my first question is, how did you know how to do that? And how did you know that that's what somebody in my position who just lost their partner very traumatically like how did you know that that's what I needed because I certainly didn't know that yeah. that's what I needed and I think if you'd asked I would have said no I'm fine I'll, yeah. I'll get through it yeah but. that's the default answer is always to say I don't know or I'm okay don't worry about it and that's our kind of defense mechanism to not want to put anybody out and in that time it's not about that um so a little backstory on me um, and my experience with loss, which has been uh, pretty, pretty great. Um, there's several losses in my life, but the, the most impactful one was losing my dad about 10 years ago. 
<clears throat> um, very traumatically. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and what felt like out of nowhere. So it was one of those rugs pulled out from underneath you moments. Um, he was 60 years old. He was working on a film in South Africa at the time. And he was fine um, by all definitions of the word. And to just get a call one day that he was found um, in his hotel room and they didn't know what happened was one of the most earth-shattering things I had ever been through. Um, and I had so many questions and... Yeah, it was horrible. And so I I know that space of feeling like everything is just shut off and you don't remember to eat or to drink or to put clothes on. And not long after, I want to say it was like within 48 hours of my dad passing. And my dad was my absolute best friend. I mean, we spoke every day at six in the morning and maybe four or five times after that. And we would just, I mean, he would, he was a film director, um, started as a stuntman in Hollywood, worked his up, his way up to become a director for the last 10 years of his life. And I would call him sometimes and he would answer and I would never know he was on set and 300 people were waiting for him. And he'd be like, yeah, shy, what's up? Like he would mm -hmm. take my call and yeah. we would shoot the shit. And then I'd realize dad, you're go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> but his baby was, girl was called. Yeah, exactly. So, that was my bond with my dad. Um, and so losing him was, was horrible. And like I was saying, within about 48 hours of my dad passing, I remember two of my best friends showing up. Hmm. And not only was it two of my best friends, one I'd known since I was 14 years old, and one I'd been dear, dear friends with for 10 or 20 years. It was my two friends who hated to fly. And I looked at them, and they didn't live in Los Angeles. One lived in Utah, Katie, and one lived in Santa Cruz. And I thought to myself, how did you guys get here? Because I know they hate fly like petrified of flying. Yeah. And they don't travel well. And one of them, also not a couch sleeper, my yeah. friend Katie. Um, and she just kind of looks at me, and she hadn't been to my new house in Topanga. And I'll never forget her looking around my house, realizing there was no guest room. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it was like... Oh, yeah. But, sorry, I was not prepared for you to show up. <laughs> but that's not on you to prepare. For no, no. But I and I probably didn't think about that until later. But um, I was literally walking around my living room in my underwear when they showed up and they both showed up. And so now there's three of us in my tiny place going, where's everyone going to sleep? And they just started making me juice and they put clothes on me and they answered the phone and they watered my plants and I remember just being so incredibly grateful because I couldn't function. And and like you said, had anybody asked me in that time, what can I do? I probably would have stared off into space and said, I'm good. Yeah. But I wasn't good. And, and that made such an impact on me that when I got the call from you, I, it wasn't a question in my mind. I dropped everything I don't I, I mean I don't even remember what I thankfully I didn't have to work that week um that was a gift yeah. and I had told my husband I gotta go and I grabbed my sleeping bag and got in the car and I drove and I was like take care of the dog I'm out of here I'll be back and he was like wait what <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was really a gift and I don't 
don't know if I'll ever be able to repay it to you, but I think that what I hopefully will be able to repay is um, that to somebody else. Yeah. And I think that kind of touches on something um, that you were saying earlier, which is, you know, this there's this web of people that you start understanding when you go through grief and when you go through loss that, you know, I, I gave a analogy i don't know if it's the best one but kind of like dorothy and the wizard of oz where you start seeing in color and you realize that there's these people who live right under your nose and maybe it's somebody you know really well like you know i've known you incredibly well um but you just see different sides of them and you see this this other color come out where you're like you get it and you understand it and you've clearly been through this um and i think death and and loss can be such a prism to kind of clarify things and and one of those things is, is seeing who has experienced it before because, and this is not a, a slight to anyone who hasn't. And, you know, thankfully if you haven't, that's fantastic and, and lucky and, um, you know, nobody wants anyone else to go through this, but I think when you've gone through it, you implicitly understand. Yeah. Um, you see it in a different color. In a totally different color. And, and that's, it's something really special. And I, I, but it's also heart you know it's this heartbreaking thing like you said you don't want you don't wish it upon anybody but when once you arrive there and we will all arrive in that color at some point in time um death is the only thing that we know for sure yeah and once you've arrived there and you see other people in that light in that new color you it's it's a little like it's a little bit of hope you're like okay like there's a life there's a whole world of people who have yep. been through this loss whether traumatic or not or too soon all the different different degrees of of loss and i i can be okay i don't have to be okay right now but you look at somebody and i had those people in my life were best friends who had lost people and all of a sudden i saw them in a new way as well yeah so i i knew that you specifically were going to get, I, I mean, I was on text threads and phone calls and people seeing all the people going, what do we do? Mm. And, you know, my advice to listeners or anybody ever wondering what to do when someone dies is to do something um, when someone loses someone. And it doesn't have to be a prescription of any specific thing, but to do something or to show up is so much better than to not say anything and there are words that definitely hurt me in that time that I wouldn't recommend uh, saying. But because in a I better place, yeah, <laughs> uh, you want to punch people. Um, but you know that, that y- now when I hear people say that, I know well you've clearly never lost anybody very close yeah. to you, um, and that's okay. And and you know we've become a part of this fucked up club, but there's a lot of us here and that's the web of help and support that that you get and and that I do hope you pass on because I think that that's really all you can do and I, and I knew in that moment nobody everyone's going to ask Jordan a million questions and I'm just going to go sit on his couch and help delegate those questions and answer them because he's not going to know which way is up sideways or backwards at this moment no and and I didn't and I I honestly don't even remember what you did i and, and that's not in an ungrateful way <laughs> i did a way. lot of it's, dishes yeah. <laughs> i <laughs> took out your trash that is in a in a it was all a blur and a, a bit of a blackout type of moment but all i know is that i was i was 
don't know what I would have done without you there. And, um, yeah, I think one of the things, you know, there's a couple of things you just touched on that I want to circle back to, but one of them was that you were the one who told me, welcome to the club and none of us want you here and it's shitty that you're here, but all the members are real nice and we'd do anything for each other. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of us too. Um, and that in a weird way, you know, kind of touching back on that prism of seeing people differently. It was like, Oh yeah, there are a lot of people in this secret club that you don't know are walking around in it. And, and maybe it was really recent and maybe it was a long time ago and maybe, you know, there's so many different ways to, to be introduced to the club, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, it felt like, okay, like there's other people who have done this and there's other people who have gotten through it. And I think that was huge for me too, was, um, seeing, seeing you, seeing other friends who had experienced, or not even just friends, you, people in my life, people who reached out from, you know, the vast interwebs. Um, but basically being like, we've been there. We don't know your exact flavor of it, but our own version was terrible and yet we can be you know a year out two years out 10 years out standing here living life's full of joy doesn't mean you don't have bad days it doesn't mean that you don't still have the breakdowns but it does mean that there's a better balance of of joy to break down and and yet I couldn't believe that at the time. Like I was like, nobody knows what this feels like. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to anyone, which I'm sure is exactly what everybody thinks. Um, don't claim to be special in that way at all. But even though I couldn't believe it, I could see it and I could see you literally standing there and I could see Ethan literally standing there. I could see these people who've, you know, endured unimaginable loss. And yet knowing that you have, beautiful happy lives and that was something that really was like okay I know I can't wrap my head around it but I can see the proof and yeah that's something I'm just gonna keep one step at a timing towards and I I had that person for me um it was my friend Billy Anderson who I grew up with and um he lost his brother who was a dear friend of mine as well when his brother was 23 to a tragic accident in Japan. Um, they were both pro snowboarders from Mammoth. And, um, we good? Yeah. Okay. Good. And, um, he, lo- Jeff died tragically in Japan, and Billy had to bring his little brother home in a box, and it was horrible. And it was one of the first traumatic losses I had had in my life. My, my grandfather had passed when I was 18 which was my first loss. It was very hard. Um, He was my grandfather, so I rationalized it in a different way, but he did die at 70, and he did get cancer and pass away within six months from being a healthy, active surfer, stuntman, to being gone. Yeah, Um, and 70's young. Yeah, it's never easy, but, um, you know, I, I, I do think that there's different genres of death, and... Some are a little easier to accept, um, but none of the loss is easy. It's just there's different kinds. And traumatic loss has its own flavor. And and having watched my friend Billy, to get back to that story, go through it, um, I remember he called me the day after, the, the day after I'd found out my dad died. 
And I didn't take many calls that day, but I answered his call because I thought to myself, okay, he knows what to do. (laughs) Like, what do I do? How do I do this? And, and when I got off the phone, I realized, okay, he doesn't know how to tell me what to do, but he is that light standing in front of me with a wife and a child, almost about 10 years later. And, and what he said to me has stuck with me. I've said it to you and, and many people since, and, and he basically, he accepted, he said, this is horrible and this sucks and there's nothing good about this. And he was the first person to say that to me because most everybody else was like, oh, there must be a reason or he's in a better place or all the bullshit, you know, statements that people say because they don't know what to say. And Billy was the first one that said, this sucks. And I was like, oh my God, like this is the worst thing ever to happen to me at this point in my life. Which is honestly one of the most, in my mind, helpful things is just for someone to acknowledge that yes this fucking sucks no this is not okay like yeah my dad like i i felt like my dad had gotten shot Mm. because i had spoken to him 20 48 hours earlier and he was fine and everything was fine i was going to visit him and there was no lead up no no Mm. nothing and and for us sadly we didn't get to find out his cause of death for four years which is a whole nother story but that unknowing was just horrifying and being so far away and there were so many things that were traumatic about it and and Billy accepting that and saying that to me and he said to me you know this is probably one of the worst things you're ever going to go through in your whole life and you're going to cry a lot and one day there will be a day that you don't cry and what I can promise you is that the time in between the hard times will get greater and what he meant by that is that there'll be a day and then there'll be two days and then I'll probably cry again. And then there could be a month or two or a year, but that that pain and sadness for my dad will always be there, but the good will start to shine through. And the way that he said that made me feel so much better because especially in that really sensitive, vulnerable time, I didn't want to feel okay. Mm -hmm. I wasn't ready. Like obviously the day after, not let alone five years later, I felt like my dad deserved my tears and I felt like he deserved everybody, the world's tears. Like you can't be happy. This man is gone. You're not allowed to go to the beach and smile and run the waves. No way. And people say, Oh, your dad would want you to be happy. It's like, of course, in theory, but he's not here. And how can I be happy without him? And you know, that, is a sad part of our culture and our inability to understand death and see it coming and look it in the face. And, and we fear it so much that I think it causes, and we talk about it so little that it causes so much more pain in my opinion, as I'm learning now, after my dad passed five years later, I lost my mom. And in that time frame, I've also lost a couple best friends, two ex-boyfriends, a dog, all kinds of things. It was a real fun ride for me there for a while. Um, yeah, and it just it it's it's really helpful to see the people who, you know, and and then actually next to Billy, the next person for me was Ethan, who I know you've spoken to. After I lost my mom, Ethan was the only other person I knew that had lost both their parents, both tragically, both in a short period of time. And he was one of the first people I called. Actually, I think I texted him and I said, now what? Yeah. And he, of course, and 
beautiful Ethan fashion, I got the most beautiful, wonderful, heartfelt text back explaining how what was just so hard to explain, but that it could be something. Mm. It could be something, it can be something, it will be yeah. something. And that's that will be like the inevitability that life will keep going um, was also so hard to understand. And yeah, um, it's funny, <laughs> Ethan told me in the aftermath, you know, he, he did a similar version of just being like, Hey, I'm picking up, we're going to the beach. Um, and we went out to the beach and this was maybe a week after everything had happened. And, you know, I don't think he was trying to give any advice, but at some point he just really, he acknowledged that, you know, this, this sucks. And there's no, for you. there's no two ways about it. Yeah. <laughs> see, you're doing all, all the things. I'm sure I'll keep finding out years later, <laughs> the machinations that Cheyenne Ellis was up to while I was in my coffin. Um, but yeah, he, he, he said this and this is, you know, there've been a couple of things that have stuck with me that I've told other people as well but you know it's like you just got handed a bag of shit and you know nobody can carry it for you and no one's ever had this particular bag of shit before but you will and you can't put it down that's gonna be the shitty thing you can't just take a break from it there's no like putting it down and resting but you will learn how to carry it yeah and well the sad thing is a lot of people it's great that he said that because i do think that a lot of people choose to let's say like leave it on the side of the trail Mm. and keep walking yeah i know a lot of people who have approached their debt like their loss or grief in that way where they try to shove it in a box lock it up and it it breaks out and aches at them you know constantly but but yeah carrying that shit with you and dealing with it is is the best way for it and it is not easy no (laughs) No. And I guess kind of cycling back to that, I mean, you had so much happen in such a short period of time. Do you feel like you processed it? Like, do you feel like you carried that? Or do you feel like, how did you go about just getting through the day and kind of keeping on? Well, I feel like I was given a lot of practice Mm. (laughs) (laughs) and I will say with my dad, I did not do it the right way. Um, and I'm very happy to talk about this because I'm, you know, still unpacking all the things, but what I've learned is that when I lost my dad, I didn't know what to do. And I, I had good friends around me, but my, I was single. Um, my sister, I have one sister, and she was married with a child, two, two kids actually at the time. The, the youngest was only about eight months. And, um, you know, she she had her support system in the house, which I think is amazing and wonderful, and she had little lives to take care of. And we talk all the time about how differently we reacted to our parents' death, and I think a lot of that has to do with her having her job as a mom and -hmm. as a wife and me not having that job. Um, you know, my, my process was maybe more selfish. I'm not sure, but it was, it was just very different because all of a sudden I felt so lost. 
felt like I had no family and you know my sister felt like she had something else to put her energy into and so for me with my dad I just worked my ass off I took every single job and I think that's around the time that you and I met I don't remember did we meet before or after my dad died I think I it was, like think it was after. right out right after. it was like very yeah I yeah think it was yeah anyway so I because I had met Weston like a year after my dad died We'd yeah. met. We'd met before, before Weston. Yeah, a yeah. Weston was a good friend of ours who also passed away uh, too soon, and um, I just kept myself busy. I I didn't sit with it. I didn't go to therapy. I didn't. I just was like, I don't want to go home. I don't want to think about my dad. I don't want to like face anything that feels like him. Um, I drank a lot. I got sick, exhausted. I ended up in the hospital from exhaustion. Didn't know that could happen. Um, but I didn't face any of it. And I was just scared and like completely lost. And, you know, I, I think the only, I, I remember being in a hotel room on a job in Chicago, not shooting the job I was supposed to be shooting and my assistant's shooting the job for me. And a doctor looking at me and saying, you need to rest. Mm-hmm. and this is like there's a, a real thing in running yourself into the ground and it took that doctor saying that to me for me to actually go oh whoa I've been like running for a long time and I'm not doing well and I think it took me about two years before I went to therapy and started talking to somebody and I found an amazing woman who I spoke with for a couple of years, and then my mom died, mm. <laughs> and not in a dissimilar fashion. Um, she was 63, and I got a call, and that she, no one had heard from her, and people were worried, and could I go by her place? And I found my dead mom oh. dead on the living room floor, and had no idea why, and it was really horrible. And that story is very different than when my mom died because I mean excuse me when my dad died because all of a sudden I remember being much more aware of myself and being like okay you have a choice like you can keep doing what you've been doing Mm -hmm. and be busy and drink and avoid um what's happening or you can stare this in the face and, and and do this differently and so what I did was um after about two weeks of utter tears I booked a trip to Tulum by myself and I went and ate well and did yoga and reflected and didn't I think I maybe had one or two glasses of wine on the whole trip just kind of like I like took a deep breath Hmm. and at that same time I had I had lost my dog in between losing my parents and I was interested in this certain breed and someone had written me while I was in Tulum saying are you in we have one of the puppies you're interested and I was like oh god this is the worst time and then I thought to myself no this is actually the best time yeah and I came home and I got a puppy and I'm like I'm gonna take some time off and I'm gonna go on a road trip and I started taking care of myself so to answer your question and circle back to how how I dealt with all that I I did it wrong once yeah. <laughs> and then given an opportunity to do it again I knew it was on me to approach it differently and I mean don't get me wrong to this day I am in therapy and and trying all the things and working on 
all the ways to to get my my mind straight and and yeah it's not an easy road i think the again another piece of advice that i'd been given was like that you'll never it never goes away like you never fix it you never like fully process it you know the idea that you're going to be back to yourself or the person that was before the trauma or the loss or the grief a totally different person yeah is is just you know that's a fool's errand like you can chase that all you want and maybe maybe you get it for a while maybe you just put your head down and work and you kind of ignore it or um i i it's so interesting to hear that because my experience was so different like i i literally couldn't work like my brain did not function to the level where i could say keep up with a calendar or you know um remember anything for like if I told myself hey like (laughs) I remember I I took out the trash and this was a couple this is after you'd left this was a couple weeks later and I was so proud of myself for taking out the trash and I remember taking the trash and walking it down the driveway and in the time that I like walked down the driveway I took the trash and I threw it straight in the recycle bin (laughs) and I had to go dig and as soon as I threw it in I was like what is happening to my brain like this is this is not me like this is like grief brain or whatever you want to call it but so anyway long story short to say that like working was not an option for me but the idea that I would ever be back to that person before also like was kind of quickly taken off the table and I was like okay well this has happened and this is not something that we can reverse it's not something that Mm -hmm we really have any choice in like we're here um and where i'm here and i guess i just need to find to kind of to ethan's point a way to like carry this new thing forward and i don't think i've done <laughs> i've done it in the way that i would have been most proud of or and even like i'm just kind of stumbling through it but i've been I, so proud of you i've watched you being like whoa he's like light years past where I was (laughs) not that there's like a barometer but I remember being so proud of your approach and openness and and taking the time and speaking to the people and I was like god Jordan I wonder I didn't know if it was like like, maybe it's an age thing or it's just a personality thing like my brain was like work and your brain definitely like paused but I also think it was um uh the fact that I had people around me who helping. who yeah. were helping me and who were giving me their their shoulder to cry and giving me their advice and not in an advicey way, but like, I didn't have a lot you know, of that. Yeah, and so I think that that is where I feel super fortunate. We were we were talking about something earlier that I want to touch on because I did kind of find it um, interesting in terms of that time when you've just lost somebody or you've, you're just going through the first steps of grief and grief and the amount of questions and decisions that you have to mm. make from, you know, uh, closing bank accounts and property to the f- next question people ask you is when's the funeral and all these decisions that you're being made to make in this amount of time. I used to joke that there should be like a grace period. Yeah. There should be a grace period for your for your brain to stop and your heart to feel and allow you this time to not have to go pick up death certificates at the county register and decide where you're going to bury your your loved one and 
you know, I think that that was something that I knew I could do for you in that time and and will always do for anybody going through something like that. I know our, our dear friend Pam just lost her dad and I hated that I couldn't be there because I just wanted to like show up and be her personal assistant mm-hmm. and say and do what I did for you in that. And I didn't even realize it was a thing. But when I had the opportunity to get in the car and show up for you, I was like, okay, he's going to get all these questions and he's going to have to make all these decisions and I'm going to just make sure he eats and puts the trash in the trash and not the <laughs> recycling and, and, and let him know the things that are important to answer now and the things that can wait because yeah. that barometer in your mind is gone and yeah. you, everything feels everything jello and people ask for your help, ask to do something and, and like, what are you going to say? Yeah. I really like Mac and cheese right now. <laughs> like, no, it's like, just make a Mac and cheese or whatever you can do yeah. in that moment. Yeah. And and we were talking about this earlier too, but the idea that people tend to wildly overestimate how their kindness will be received in terms of, um, you know, people typically think that, oh, it'll be unwelcome or they'll think that I'm being awkward or I don't know them well enough to show up and do something for them. Or if I make them food, maybe I make them food they don't like or, you know, any, any of these self-doubting questions when the reality is that the person receiving the kindness um, and there's studies on this, but actually appreciates the gesture so much more totally. than the person ever could expect. So it goes, it goes both ways. You doubt what you're going to sh- show up and do. And yet the person, even if you do quote unquote the wrong thing, they're so much more grateful for just yeah. ah, something having been done. I don't remember any bad meals being brought to me. The only thing I remember are the people who did not show up. Yeah. Same. If, and, and it's, it's obviously there's limits with time and space and finances and all the things, but if you want to do something, do something. And if it's a text right away and then two weeks later you can meet up with them or whatever it is, it's, I, I remember a friend recently saying, I, I don't know what to bring them over to eat. I'm like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like no. just go. Yeah. I, I want to check in, but I'm nervous and. And, and that is just the fear because we don't talk about it enough. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no playbook. And I think that that's really unfortunate. No. And if we can normalize saying what we feel or bringing what we want to do, that little like person on your shoulder, that's like, oh, I should do something. It's like, just do it. Just, yeah. Yeah. Listen to that one. Um, just to add one last thing to that, I think something that's really interesting that I definitely felt and I'm, I'm sure other people have shared this is, you know, when it first happens, there's this outpouring, right? Everybody wants to do something, wants to show up, you know, hopefully, hopefully you have that community and that support. Um, but then, you know, a couple of weeks out, people just disappear. And so maybe, maybe you're not sure what to do and maybe it is all you can do in the moment to call them and leave them a message because they're not picking up their phone. But you know, what's really helpful is, Maybe a month later, two weeks later, a month later, three months later, like have that same check in because I guarantee you, you know, if it was a bad, bad loss, like they're going to still be really grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even more so than that. I mean, yeah, I I think that's the best advice. And, you know, because you're so heartbroken that everybody's lives are normal and yours is now forever different. And it's a new normal that you will adjust to. But 
it feels so surreal and I think it's so important to have people around you that that understand that understand that and um, yeah can lift you up in that time so keeping on with this theme of of death and the way that we don't really talk about it tell me about your recent experience in Indonesia mm, yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh it was great I just got back about three days ago still jet-lagged um, but so I was on my honeymoon although I was very excited to take photos and my husband was very excited to surf we had to laugh one day and be like wait we are on our honeymoon we both should probably just like lay around the pool or something <laughs> but we're both busy people and um so in true fashion of myself i found this local woman who took me to a local village uh we went to this island called sumba uh, it's about an hour and a half from bali it's um dirt roads, tiny towns, and um, such a beautiful, beautiful place, beautiful people. And I wanted to go see the traditional villages. And so we go into this village and I had this wonderful translator who was kind of explaining to me the religion um, of of the people of the island. And she explained to me that there weren't many Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim on the island, that the island was primarily now Christian, but it was all rooted in their ancestry's religion, which is called Marapu, and it's M-A-R-A-P-U. And um, when I asked her about it and what it was, she kind of started telling me, like, oh, she was very vague, like, oh, we accept all religions, we love everybody, and and we roll up to this village, and there's these giant tombs. And Sumba is one of the last megalithic um, cultures in the world, and they have these giant rock stone tombs that they carve and their deceased ancestors are buried in these tombs in front of their homes these like thatched roof huts that are all open air and underneath the living quarters are the pigs and the chickens it's wild and they walk by their ancestors every day and they speak to their ancestors and and when i asked wow like the the in their above ground they're these giant giant things she said, yeah, we speak to our ancestors all the time, and our ancestors' job is to deliver our, um, what would you call it, like anything that they ask of the gods. They, mm. they say gods, but they don't have a god. Um, you know, the spirits, they ask their ancestors to essentially tra- like give that message, which is why they are buried in a tomb in front of their house. They're very much a part. They're still very present. Still yeah. very present. Yeah. And from the day children are born, they're talked to about death. And it's accepted. It's going to happen. And so live your life as beautifully as you can, as well as you can, because you're going to die. And when you die, you'll still be here with us, and there's nothing to fear, there's nothing to worry about. And obviously there's, there's scenarios that happen where a child is taken too young by disease or somebody, you know, there's freak accidents, but... but even in that time, she told me, it's death is not essentially, it's they celebrate the life. And so um, as she's explaining all this to me, and I'm learning more about their tradition and, and their heritage, um, she tells me, yes, you know, this woman in the next village over just passed away yesterday, and we're going to have a funeral on Thursday if you'd like to come. And I'm thinking, wow, like, first of all, I'm getting invited to a funeral of someone yeah. I don't know. Um but it sounds like invited with a sense of celebration yeah. as opposed it's, to it was like, I was you invited, invited to a party. To your, yeah, to a like we're having a party on here. Thursday. Yeah. You want to come? Yeah. And, I, and I, of course, was like, of course. Um, 
did not know what I was getting myself into, but I did go back and speak to um, some Westerners who had been in, in Sumba for years, and they said, oh, if you got invited, you should go. Hmm. Um, it's very beautiful. The whole village shows up, and so basically they um, they dress up water buffalo as kind of a symbol of of wealth and status in their culture, and they, they bring water buffalo that they sacrifice um, for the deceased. And it's not done, it's done directly, it's not done in like a game or a sport, um, but it is done as like an offering to the gods and an offering for this person that they've lost. And it's this whole funeral is a celebration. There's kids running around with ice cream cones and everyone's dressed up in all the traditional beautiful garb and everybody's smiling, everybody's happy and it's very intentional. And I mean, it's a small village, but there had to be hundreds of people there. Mm. Everybody came. It was, it was so beautiful. Um, and I feel like if you grow up seeing that, it's not something to look forward to, but you think, Oh wow. Like one day my life will be celebrated in this way. And how special is that? And so obviously so when they sacrificed the buffalo they slaughtered the buffalo but then they continued to butcher the buffalo and then cook the buffalo and hand out pieces of the buffalo to everybody's getting horns and i mean and the joy i mean i'm taking pictures but i'm so emotionally confused because i'm there's blood everywhere <laughs> and smiles everywhere and people are hauling away a leg or a, i saw the heart of one of these buffaloes it had to be bigger than my head and there's just so much joy and celebration. And yet this woman has just passed away, but the, the way she was being sent off and also still staying so present with the family by being in this tomb right in front of their home was just so unique and so incredibly special. And I mean, we got home and I'm just like, I, I want to look more into Madapu. I think we should convert. No, <laughs> it was refreshing. That's very refreshing. The idea that, the idea that you can just have like a candid conversation about death and that right. it's not taboo and that it even can lend. It was more, it, it was so normal. Mm-hmm. So incredibly normal. It was like, oh yeah, funeral. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll probably have another one next week. <laughs> Whereas I mean, we're like, vi- oh my village God, of a couple I have to go people, to a yeah, funeral. Probably, yeah, yeah, the language is so different. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also, and, and this is something that I feel like I've taken from my experience with Lee's death, which was having been in that dark place and, and having really sat in a place of like loss and grief and not knowing when it was going to get better. The times that are better and that do feel joyful and the times that I do find myself laughing and smiling and really enjoying my life just feel that much better Mm. and so the idea of a religion or a culture that talks about death and you know puts life into context where you know it doesn't have to do with loss but it has to do with like relevancy of your life like you're not going to be here forever and like let's make the most of it that's not true yes i know we all (laughs) let's biohack our way to you know (laughs) i mean indefinite life somebody's working on that right now but um like given the choice, like, would you want to live forever? Like, I wouldn't. Sure don't. I mean, I I even have like an expiration date. I I feel like I'm good at like 80, 85 tops. Like, I don't. I I have two 92. Gosh, 92 or 93. 92 year old grandmothers 
I don't have parents, but I have a 93-year-old grandfather and a 92, 92-year-old wow. grandmas. And I love them dearly, but I am watching them age, and it breaks my heart at the loss of life in their voice and their bodies and the amount that it frustrates them. They're, they're doing well, like they're, they're doing okay, but I see that glimmer, especially for them having lost children. My, my dad's mom has lost two of her children and her husband. And I think of that existence and it breaks my heart for her. And then my other grandparents have lost their daughter and my mom and all eight of their siblings and all these things. And, and I just, I see this sadness and I'm not saying that anybody else needs an expiration date because I've definitely <laughs> also just met a hundred year old woman in this Sumbanese village who was smoking tobacco and eating and showing me weavings she had done. And I was like, whoa, you just redefined age for me in a whole new way. Um, but yeah, I, I joke that like I, I want to live life as much as I can now. And, and if, you know, for me it ends at 80, that'd be, that'd be great. <laughs> well, I have a feeling you're going to be more along the lines of not that you smoke, but just living it up and weaving oh, until you're. I mean, maybe if I move to Sumba, if I move to move to Sumba, I will definitely. Yeah, I I think that we don't, or I I'll speak for myself. I don't give enough credit or think really even about how people who are in their 90s, like the amount of loss that they've <laughs> endured, and. It's, yeah, that's just a statement. It's not even a question. But totally. Like, no, I, I worked for a photographer when I was living in New York, um, Irving Penn, who hopefully any photographer in this day and age does know who he is, but he was a living legend when I was with him. He's no longer with us. And he photographed his first Vogue cover in, in the 40s. And um, um, I want to say, gosh, maybe he passed away can't remember exactly how long he's been gone but um, my point is I remember he was in his 80s when I was working with him and all his peers around him had passed away Henry Cartier-Bresson um, I remember when Helmut Newton died and Avedon I mean it was just all of them all of the greats of that time were gone and he looked at me one day and he said all my friends are gone and I felt so sad for him. I thought, wow, like you are literally the last one of that genre and that time pr frame left. And he was still painting and photographing up until the day he died. And, but I remember, I mean, and maybe that's just my own sadness. Maybe he didn't have that sadness, but there was definitely something for him and, and people, my grandparents, you know, having lost so many people. But that takes me back to something that we don't have to spend too much time on is community and that's what I saw in Sumba the difference in being surrounded by a community like that I think that loss is so different and so much easier to face because your support system is so great and sadly in this culture when you age you go into an old old folks home mm -hmm. you're no one wants to deal with you or put up with you and you're isolated and i look i do feel like both my grandparents are very isolated in their loss and they don't have a big community around them we, i probably only now get to check in on them four times a year at best yeah and that i think you know is, is that little loss of life I see in their eyes is like, oh, wow, my community, my family, my reason for living is gone. And when I was in Sumba, I mean, just it, it's 
once you lose another family member, I mean, I, the woman who was showing me around only had one child, but her four siblings each had eight children. She said, I decided to only have one so I could help my sisters. Mm-hmm. She could be a better auntie. And I was like, wow, like just that concept is so unique. I'm so glad you brought it back to community as we get to the end of this, because I, I don't know if this is a question, but I just, I don't know what I would have done without my community and that, you know, obviously you were a huge part of that. Um, I think that that loss and that time of my life just, it really shone a a harsh light on what I'd built to that point and who I was. But the thing that reflected back at me most clearly was that the time I'd spent investing in my community was honestly all that really mattered because the people around me, the people who showed up, the people who brought food, the people who called, who just were there with a kind ear and, you know, could take me to the beach or for a walk or would check in. That's what got me through it a hundred percent. And it was, it was that, and it was hearing stories from people again, like yourself or Ethan or others who had been there and, and were on the other side of the worst of it. And so, yeah, I think, you know, if if I took anything from that and hearing your stories about Sumba, which I think maybe we're just all going to move there now. But <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> but yeah, to to have community like that and to to be supported through through everything from lost to old age. I mean, I think that's if anyone's found the secret of life, that sounds like it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. This has been a treat and appreciate you appreciate you having having you in my life keeping the conversation going going. i I think that this will if anything help a lot of people you know that maybe don't have the right people to call or the right you know things being said and they can tune into something like this and hear other people's stories and and have that little little beacon of hope and and support yeah i'm the last metaphor I'll give was just that I feel like the hearing these stories were like little lamp posts in the dark and they mm. were just somewhere where you could kind of rest in the light before you know going out into the dark again and going to the next lamp post so thank you for shining your light my pleasure love you <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Never the Same. You can find more episodes as well as some supplemental media over at neverthesame.substack.com. And you can even sign up and get notified when new episodes come out. I occasionally post over on the gram under my name, Jordan P. Chu, C-H-I-U. Really appreciate the support. See you guys for the next one. Until then.